Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. President, just a year ago, you welcomed me to Bucharest as the first American president ever to visit Romania. Today, I'm very honored to welcome you to Washington, D.C. as the first president of Romania ever to visit the United States of America. On the 21st of December, 1989, Romanian president Nicolae Ceausescu, the moderate friend of the West, who'd been knighted in Denmark and the United Kingdom, who'd condemned the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and snubbed the Warsaw Pact, stepped out onto a balcony overlooking Palace Square in Bucharest. In the weeks prior, communist regimes across Eastern Europe had fallen like dominoes in a popular wave of revolution, cheered on by governments in the West. Despite his supposed credentials as a moderate, Bucharest was seemingly impervious to change. Thousands of Rocker supporters greeted him as they held his portrait aloft and waved communist flags in the air. But Ceausescu had not come to praise the revolution. He had come to bury it. A sudden commotion at the back of the crowd caught his attention. Panicked citizens, spooked by gunfire or firecrackers, began rushing forward. As they did so, the unnerved Ceausescu lost his train of thought. The mood in the square quickly turned and portraits of the president were trampled underfoot as cries of revolution rang out. In this episode, I explore Romania, 1989. The Romanian Revolution of 1989 was partially the result of the country's long tradition of simultaneously resisting and embracing outside forces and influences. It's a process that stretches back to the 2nd century AD, when the Roman Emperor Trajan conquered the area and plundered its gold. Goths, Huns, Bulgars, Magyars and Ottomans followed each group being fiercely resisted before being driven out by heroic figures like Vlad the Impaler. But each invasion force left its legacy, producing a nation that is more heterogeneous than its neighbours. Like the surrounding Slavic countries, Romania embraced Orthodox Christianity, but unlike its Yugoslavian, Bulgarian and Ukrainian neighbours, it used the Latin alphabet. Indeed, Romanian is the language most closely tied to modern Italian, while the majority of the Balkan states speak in Slavic, Turkic or Greek. In the First World War, Romania was initially neutral, then joined the Entente powers before making peace with the Central powers, finally rejoining the Entente powers in 1918. Similarly, it started as neutral in the Second World War, before joining the Axis powers and then switching to the Allies in 1944. 
But all of this back and forth wasn't anything to do with indecisiveness. It was driven by the Romanian desire to protect its interests while weighing the risks posed by its larger and more powerful neighbours. Much like Germany and Hungary, Romania in the 20s and 30s was a polarised society battled over by fascists and left-wing extremists, but with a despotic king trying to keep a lid on things. As the war ended, the Soviets liberated Romania, but with freedom came the Soviet-backed regime. There was certainly no shortage of communists and socialists already in Romania, but the Soviets ensured the new republic would be squarely in the hands of its communist allies. But being surrounded by other Soviet-style states, Romania wasn't as strategically important as, say, East Germany or Czechoslovakia. By the 1960s, as long as it remained communist, it was largely left to forge its own path like Yugoslavia or Albania. The Romanian drive for independence reared its head in 1968, when President Ceausescu both refused to support the Warsaw Pact's invasion of Czechoslovakia and publicly decried it as a huge mistake. Ceausescu exploited the Khrushchev-era reforms and de-Stalinized Romania, while also playing the Russians and the emerging power of China off against each other. He was initially very popular. The purges ordered by his predecessor seemed to be a thing of the past. The economy was booming as Romania became more insular and rebuffed attempts to make it the breadbasket of Eastern Europe. He even forged close ties with Western-leaning Israel and Chile's fascist dictator Pinochet. Even more controversially, Romania improved diplomatic ties with the West, including West Germany. Ceausescu wasn't quite the smiling face of communism like Czechoslovakia's Dubček, but like Yugoslavia's Tito, he was building a communist nation that could coexist with the West. The Western powers were eager to capitalise on any cracks in the Iron Curtain, and they eagerly supported Ceausescu by providing finance. The problem was that Ceausescu became addicted to credit. Huge amounts were spent on redeveloping Bucharest and building a metro system, but loans always come with strings attached, and the money supply was only good for as long as Ceausescu was playing ball. After being knighted by the Queen of England, and visiting Nixon's White House, Ceausescu suddenly found himself seduced by a different way of living. In 1971, he made a state visit to North Korea. Pyongyang, like Bucharest, had been devastated by war, but he marvelled at the modern buildings and broad boulevards of the rebuilt city. Moreover, he saw how it was all held together by a powerful personality of cult based around Kim Il-sung. For a childhood peasant runaway and one-time petty criminal, the thought of omnipotence was something he could not resist. Very quickly, Romanian propaganda switched from talk of an egalitarian state to one in which all the citizens owed a debt of gratitude to the all-powerful leader and his wife. Elena Ceausescu, like her husband, came from a poor peasant family. She was barely educated, and husband and wife were said to have been aware of their lack of physical attributes. But while he was the face of Romanian communism, she was the one person who had not just influence, but a degree of control over him. It was said that all political appointments had to be approved by her, to the extent that Nikolai would surreptitiously 
rushed through staff changes when she was on vacation. She was also presented as the face of science and technology, an absurd claim for someone whose education extended to two years in elementary school. But it was all part of the North Korean-style mythology. She was frequently praised for scientific developments that she had little knowledge of and certainly no involvement in. But as the 1970s wore on, the couple's desire to free Romania from foreign influence led them to start to drive to reverse the declining population. Abortions and contraceptives were banned. Soviet-style gulags that had previously been dispensed with were kicked back into action. Worse still, pregnant women seeking abortions were committed to insane asylums and subject to torture under the guise of treatment. The attempts to boost the population led to over 10,000 deaths by illegal abortions, and poorly managed orphanages soon became overrun with unwanted babies. Worse was to follow. Stricken by debt payments that left the country beholden to the West, the economy stagnated and became one of Europe's poorest. This prompted Ceausescu to launch an austerity drive. It was intended as a short-term measure to pay off the national debt, after which Romania would thrive with an insular economy. However, the austerity measures were a tough pill to swallow for people whose living standards were well below their neighbours in Yugoslavia. Oil, gas and food were rations. Citizens were given pamphlets on how to survive with a 25% reduction of caloric intake. Power blackouts became frequent. Cars couldn't run due to a lack of fuel. But as if to rub salt into the wounds, Ceausescu used the nation's scant resources to level the centre of Bucharest and build a North Korean-style capital equipped with the so-called House of the Republic, an ornate government building that at 4.1 million tonnes is today still the heaviest building in the world. People were starving, seeing historic sites and monasteries destroyed, while the leader of the supposedly communist regime was building something akin to a cross between the Taj Mahal and the Pentagon, slap bang in the middle of Bucharest. Needless to say, discontent soon became prevalent, but this wasn't initially addressed as Ceausescu bolstered the Romanian equivalent of the Stasi, or KGB, the Securitate. Agents and informers were said to be everywhere. Exaggerated reports suggested that one in every three Romanians were informers, while the internal surveillance was real and prevalent, the scale of it was deliberately amplified to scare husbands about trusting their wives, teachers into trusting their students, and priests into trusting their congregants. While this dystopian nightmare evolved, Romania was hit by poor harvests. Crops were in short supply, shelves were empty. Yet on TV, the populace saw the president proudly greeting farmers with bountiful harvests. What people may have guessed, but didn't know, was that the fruits and crops on display were in fact plastic or polystyrene replicas. But with total control of the media, limited interaction with outsiders, and an abundant climate of fear, Ceausescu was able to press on with his charade. Outside Romania, things were beginning to change. In 1986, the new Soviet premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, was trying to address economic stagnation in his own land. Aside from economic reforms, he realised that political liberalisation was necessary 
and he used terms like glasnost and perestroika to illustrate his eagerness for a more open, progressive society. Poland and Hungary, nations which had rebelled against Soviet influence, were quick to embrace the reforms. By mid-1989, Hungary had dismantled border fortifications, while Poland held free elections. East Germany, the most Stalinist of the Warsaw Pact countries, saw its position undermined when Gorbachev came on a state visit and demanded reforms. A miscommunication on the 9th of November led guards at the Berlin Wall to open the border, after which the regime all but collapsed. Later that month, under pressure from vast crowds of protesters in Wenceslas Square, the hardline regime imposed in 1968 in Czechoslovakia took a back step and allowed heroes of the Prague Spring like Dubček and Havel to return from internal exile and take control. Bulgaria, Romania's southern neighbour, quickly followed, with a surprisingly uneventful regime change. By December 1989, Romania was the only Warsaw Pact member still clinging to totalitarianism. Coming up, Ceausescu confronts the modern-day Thomas Beckett. While you're here, please check out my other episodes. Here is a sneak peek. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lost the not Berlin in common. Let all free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. If you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Romania had all the ingredients that had led to revolution elsewhere in Europe. A corrupt totalitarian regime, economic decline, and an increasingly restless and discontented populace. But the revolution needed a spark, and it was not found in the coffee shops or universities of Bucharest, but far away in an obscure church in Timisoara, a short distance from the Yugoslavian border. The pastor of the church was an ethnic Hungarian named Laszlo Tokes. He was a preacher in the Reformed Church of Romania, which despite its name was a Calvinist church, largely attended by Hungarians. Tokes had been a thorn in the authority's side since the early 1980s, when he contributed an article on human rights abuses 
to a dissident Hungarian language newsletter. This led to harassment from the Securitate, who lent on the local bishop to curtail his activities. But it was to no avail. In 1988, he began preaching against systemization, the Ceausescu directive that sought to emulate the North Korean process of dismantling small villages and farms and shuffling citizens into more efficient industrial cities with lots of concrete tower blocks, but very little charm. In July, things kicked up a notch when a surreptitiously recorded interview with Tokesh was broadcast on Hungarian TV. This was just as Hungary was starting to break free from the shackles of communism. Among other things, he said Romanian rights were being suppressed and that the people should no longer follow Ceausescu. To say this caused a stir would be an understatement. The Securitate again lent on the local bishop, who ordered his expulsion from the church. To encourage his swift departure, the government also cut off his electricity and stripped him of his ration book. Rather like Henry II in England, Ceausescu must have been thinking, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? But the situation had evolved, and it was no longer as simple as just shutting down Tokesh. People in Timisoara and other border areas were able to pick up foreign television, and many of them had seen the Tokesh interview, delivered it must be said through a sympathetic news channel. Tokesh's parishioners flocked to him and protested the eviction. One supporter was taken away and murdered in a nearby forest. Armed assailants with the support of the Securitate then invaded his apartment in November and tried to force him to leave, but they were beaten back by his parishioners. This incident caused the Hungarian government to demand assurances for Tokesh's protection, but Ceausescu was in no mood to back down. On the 15th of December, a large crowd of largely ethnic Hungarians organised a protest in defiance of the government's attempts to evict Tokesh. The local mayor tried to convince him to leave, and seemed even to overturn the eviction order. But Tokesh rebuffed calls to depart, while suggesting that his supporters should disperse for their own safety. It was the biggest challenge the regime had faced since anti-austerity protests had broken out in Brasov three years earlier. This situation frightened Ceausescu. After all, Timisoara had only been incorporated into Romania after World War I. In the century prior, it had been one of the crown jewels of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, boasting streetlights in 1884, long before any other European city. The government's response was that Tokesh wasn't concerned about Romanian rights. Far from it. He was simply stirring up ethnic tensions. This was the narrative the government ran with, as they officially struggled to contain the Hungarian problem. But pretty quickly, the protests evolved from the minority group to crowds of both ethnic Hungarians and Romanians. In the evening of December the 15th, protesters made their way downtown, and some began hurling rocks at the Communist Party headquarters. They sung Awaken Thee, Romanian, the pre-communist era national anthem, which had been officially banned. Cries of Down with the Dictator rang out as paramilitary forces forced the revolutionaries back towards the church. But the sheer size of the crowd was now beyond the control of the local authorities, whose water cannons were seized and smashed up by protesters. Riots continued through the night, as people ransacked government offices and smashed up symbols of the Ceausescu regime. 
On the 17th of December, in a scene eerily reminiscent of Prague 20 years earlier, troops and tanks rolled into Timisoara. During the Prague Spring, Ceausescu had endeared himself to the West as an outspoken opponent of the brutal crackdown. But this one was worse. With Czechoslovakian troops consigned to their barracks in 1968, the communist regime there could at least pin the blame on foreign forces from the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies. By December 1989, Ceausescu had no Warsaw Pact allies to call upon. Instead, he sent the Romanian army into Timisoara to suppress their own countrymen. As the army tried to regain control, soldiers began firing into crowds in Liberty Square at around 8pm. Carnage and chaos followed. Ceausescu was so confident of a swift victory that he left the country and made a state visit to Iran. His wife Elena was a de facto ruler in his absence, but neither he nor she was prepared for what followed. The embattled mayor imposed a curfew and martial order, but the momentum could not be stopped. The Hungarians chanted, Romanians, come with us, and dozens did, ripping the communist emblem from the Romanian flag before congregating outside their church, the Romanian Orthodox Cathedral. Fearless protesters faced a barrage of attacks and at least 73 people were killed over the course of the next few days. Fearing their graves could be magnets for people who viewed them as martyrs and also to try and cover up the atrocities, Elena Ceausescu had the bodies of dozens of murdered protesters flown to the capital where they were cremated and disposed of. But the more the government tried to quell the riots, the more things spiralled out of control. By the 19th of December, the factory workers went on strike. The following day, 100,000 of them marched through the city chanting and holding banners that called for an end to the regime. Prime Minister Konstantin Daszczelewski travelled to the city and attempted to negotiate with the rioters. He agreed to release many of the imprisoned protesters, but he was not authorised to bow to their primary demand, the resignation of Ceausescu. Having failed to quell the revolt with force or dialogue, Elena Ceausescu came up with another plan. The whole ideology of communist Romania was based on the false notion that it was a republic of the people. The Ceausescus just happened to be in charge. So they tried to stir up an ethnic fueled riot by feeding industrial workers in neighbouring cities with stories about nationalist Hungarians trying to bring down Romania. This was a narrative supported by officially sanctioned press reports and initially seemed as if it would work. Thousands of workers from neighbouring Altenia were given rudimentary weapons such as iron bars and clubs and crammed into trains destined for Timisoara. The sentiment on the train was pro-government and the workers seemed eager to protect their nation from these dissident Hungarians. But once again, things quickly unraveled. Upon arriving in the city, hordes of out-of-town workers quickly encountered a column of protesters. What they saw were Romanian flags with the communist emblem removed, people holding patriotic placards, and an assortment of both Romanians and ethnic Hungarians pleading with them to join the revolt. Realising the reality of the situation, the workers from Altenia quickly sided with the rebels. On the 20th of December, 
Ceausescu arrived back from Romania. He did what he could to keep a lid on the crisis, but even in an era before cell phones and widespread internet, it was easier said than done. The nation's borders were closed, flights refused permission to land, and trains turned back from Bulgaria. But scores of travellers had already made their way back into Yugoslavia after the violence erupted in Timisoara, and their stories were now being broadcast on foreign television. Meanwhile, Radio Free Europe was carefully detailing reports in Romanian language around the country that were being surreptitiously listened to by people. In border regions, people saw reports on Hungarian or Yugoslav TV, and word of mouth was starting to spread rumours of the massacre from Timisoara into other parts of the country. There were also a few foreign journalists on the ground sending video footage and first-hand accounts to the outside world. But Bucharest seemed oblivious to the situation. It was calm, life went on as normal, and Ceausescu decided to capitalize on the mood by organizing a rally on the 21st of December. Now whether Bucharest seemed peaceful because some people knew nothing of the uprising, or whether people did know but feared sharing the news with Securitate spies seemingly everywhere, it's hard to say. But what we do know is that as ever, thousands of loyal communists lined up in Palace Square that morning to see Ceausescu's speech. He blamed the riots on fascists and proceeded to offer salary boosts to the assembled crowd. But a group of people beyond the front rows began to chant Timisoara, Timisoara. Hello! 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 Ceausescu nervously resumed his speech until the commotion erupted at the back of the crowd. Now, just as the nation as a whole needed a catalyst to spark rebellion, so did this rally. But even today, we don't know exactly what caused the people at the rear of the crowd to enter a panic and start screaming and rushing forward. Reports at the time said there was gunfire. If there was, it seems unlikely Ceausescu sanctioned it, as he was in the middle of delivering a speech. One widely discussed theory is that Soviet agents were involved. Going back to 68, Ceausescu had been a problem for Moscow. After Gorbachev's reforms, he was even more of an issue, and he knew it. The Securitate had for years operated a special unit specifically designed to counter threats from the USSR. One theory is that Soviet agents fired gunshots in order to panic the crowd. Other people have suggested some errant firecrackers were to blame. But whatever the reason, the crowd soon surged forward, egged on by people shouting that the firing was coming from the Securitate. Until this point, the rally had been shown live on Romanian TV. Suddenly, the footage was cut off as Ceausescu and his entourage rushed inside the palace. On the square below, flags without the communist emblem were waved as the protest became larger and larger. But before long, the Securitate did begin to shoot. Armed trucks ploughed into civilian protesters, while others were beaten, stabbed or shot. By late afternoon, most of the protesters had fled to safety. But the following morning, they were back, and they easily breached barricades surrounding the square. By now, people had started to flow into the capital from other areas of the nation. 
Ceausescu, whether overly confident in his security forces or paralyzed by shock, simply camped out in his palace before attempting to address the angry crowd the following morning. He soon retreated as the protesters unleashed their fury on him. His wife tried to take control of proceedings. After a day of protesters being greeted with gunfire, she instructed helicopters to drop leaflets onto the crowd, urging people to go home and enjoy Christmas. At 9.30am, Vasily Miller, the Minister of Defence and Chief of the Army, was found dead. He'd been ordered to use the military to use deadly force to break the demonstrations. Ceausescu claimed he had committed suicide after being sacked from his post. But as with the gunfire in the crowd, mystery surrounds his death. His family claim he was executed for defying Ceausescu's. Others have claimed he aimed simply to maim himself so he would be relieved of his duties, but he accidentally killed himself. Either way, he was quickly replaced with a man who was seemingly a Ceausescu loyalist, Victor Stankolescu. He quickly convinced the Ceausescus to depart Bucharest via Bucharest. But as they did so, he ordered most of his soldiers to return to their barracks. Those who remained stood aside as protesters stormed the palace. But the army were never as crucial to Ceausescu as the Securitate. And even as troops defected to the rebels en masse, shooting continued as heavily armed Securitate paramilitaries continued to fight the regime. Civil war being fought out on the streets of Bucharest can have only one outcome. The immense firepower of the army, reinforced by the anger of ordinary people, must soon overcome the bitter last-ditch resistance of the Ceausescu loyalists. The army's attempts to defeat the security forces were initially frustrated, as some of the supposed defectors were leaking information to the Securitate about the army's movements. Meanwhile, the TV stations were taken over by protesters who shared news of the revolution with the rest of the country. This is Radio Bucharest, Romania. Listeners following by great popular manifestations in the capital city of Romania, Bucharest, and all over the country, today, December 22nd, 1989, the dictatorial regime of Nicolae Ceausescu was overthrown. At 16.30 local time in Bucharest, created was the National Committee of Democracy in Romania, whose main objective is the preparation for the passage to a democratic life in this country. The fleeing Ceausescus had initially sought refuge in a commune 40 kilometers from Bucharest, where they called for helicopters full of troops to join them. But upon calling for these reinforcements, their pilot was told by his superior that a revolution was underway, and as he put it, you're on your own. Thereafter, the once proud Ceausescu's reign ended in farce. The helicopter pilot deliberately flew erratically, prompting Ceausescu to demand the craft be landed. From there, they hailed a ride with a passing driver, who eventually pretended he had engine trouble as a way of getting the couple to leave his car. Another man offered them a ride, before providing sanctuary in an agricultural institute. Once they went inside, he locked the door and then eventually handed them over to local police. Among the many theories tied to the events of December 19th, 1989, 
is the idea that the Securitate had an elaborate plan for a counter-revolution in the event of a coup. Critical to this was the tracking device that Ceausescu was somehow separated from during his botched escape. Had all gone to plan, the theory goes, the Securitate would have swooped in and rescued him. After a brief trial, the Ceausescus were shot against the wall in a televised event on Christmas Day, 1989. In the aftermath of their death, violence continued for two days more. Over a thousand people were killed. The interim government was formed before Ion Iliescu, a one-time Ceausescu favourite, who had fallen out of favour, eventually took charge as a democratically elected president. But even his rise to power is subject to controversy. It's been alleged he was close to the Soviets, and this boosts the conspiracy theories, blaming Soviet agents for starting the gunfire that caused the melee on the 21st of December, which in turn sparked the revolution. Two decades later, Iliescu faced charges that through a deliberate campaign of misinformation which created chaos, and that he was the beneficiary and the cause of the hundreds of deaths that occurred after Ceausescu fled Bucharest. After four years of delays and counter-accusations of misinformation against the current regime, Iliescu's charges were dropped. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.